When you're hiring, it feels amazing to finally close out a job search. But what if you could get rid of the search and just match? You can with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. A duck in a pond can create ripples that go all the way across the pond. But in a bigger sense, it's that you can be a duck and you can create ripples that go across the ocean. Welcome into the Mighty Oregon Podcast, presented by Oregon Community Credit Union. I'm Rob Mosley. There's not a day that goes by that you don't see a Tinker Hatfield creation. No matter where you are in the world, whether it's a shoe, a shirt, or a building, Tinker is probably there with you. As overwhelming as that idea is, It's even more improbable given that the journey to becoming a household name in popular culture began in rural Lynn County, Oregon. I grew up in Lynn County, not far from Albany and Corvallis, but also not that far from Eugene, but but a little bit closer to Albany and Corvallis, and, and it was and is farming country. Like his father, Tinker Hatfield was a three sport athlete in high school, and the early beginnings of his mindset for change were established by his dad who as a coach and athletic director at his high school, was known as an outside-the-box thinker. It's safe to say that trait was passed down to Tinker. My dad and I are very similar in that regard, um, that, you know, we weren't followers or trying to um, fit in with a crowd, per se. I had a bigger vision for myself. Fear was not a word that existed in the Hatfield vocabulary, and that attitude served him well as he began to do bigger and better things. I was just kind of fearless that way. It's just sort of natural, I guess. And it kind of runs in the family. You grew up in, you know, relatively small town, rural Oregon, which... Very I think, small town. Yeah. <laughs> in, you know, a lot of communities like that are, 
our Oregon State country, just because I think more than oh, identifying yeah. with the agricultural without, side of it. But, but you come up as a track and field athlete, and obviously Oregon track and field means a lot. So what did what did the Oregon Ducks, the prominence of the University of Oregon, when you were growing up, what did it mean to you? Yeah, yeah. So I went. I grew up in Lynn County, um, right in the middle of Lynn County, not not far from Albany and Corvallis. Yeah, but also not that far from Eugene, but but a little bit closer to Albany and Corvallis, and and farming it is it was and is farming country, and I would say that ninety percent of the students in my high school were Oregon State Beaver fans, and uh, but a couple of close friends of mine were um, we liked the Beavers, but but we were kind of like there's something about the U of O was kind of cool. My dad as a as a coach and a teacher wasn't involved in farming and he liked Oregon and he was into USC and Stanford. And, you know, I think he always hoped that I would go to one of those schools instead of Oregon, but nonetheless, he was, he, he wasn't, uh, we weren't, we weren't beaver centric. What did he coach and how much of an influence was he in terms of your sporting interests? My father was from a small town in Southern Oregon and he went to Myrtle Point High School, which uh, in an era when Myrtle Point, uh, which maybe had three or 400 kids in their high school, they were pretty good in sports for a small school, but he uh, he came from from a family of loggers and and he was not interested in that. He wanted to go to college first one in the his immediate family to go. So, and uh, he ended up going to to the University of Pacific out here in Forest Grove, and and he was a three sport athlete there. What made him more worldly, perhaps, for lack of a better word, than some of his contemporaries? It sounds like that might yeah, be the case. Yeah, that's a good question. I think I think he was just driven. I think he I think just I think he just had high expectations for himself and his uh, brother and and his cousins. They just immediately went to work in the woods and did go to college and whatever. And so that wasn't his vision for himself. And uh, so he he went to the University of Pacific and played basketball played football and and was on the track team and i think he i think uh he went there specifically because they turn out pretty good uh coaches in that school they they have a program for teachers and coaches he went there knowing that he wanted to be a coach i think i think he just always knew it and uh, he and he turned out to be a quite renowned coach in the state of oregon and was even one year in track and field that national track and field high school coach of the year for the whole country yeah so he was driven and he worked hard and yeah i think some of that got passed along to me it sounds like maybe some of the willingness to not follow a a common path is maybe your your peers willing to think a little little different i think think there were my my dad and i very similar in that regard um that you know wasn't we weren't followers or trying to um, fit in with a crowd per se had a big bigger vision for myself certainly and uh, I didn't get in any trouble I didn't do I hardly even dated in high school because I was just trying to be an athlete and I was in the band and I was trying to prepare myself for college hope you know hoping to get a scholarship and um, when I started getting more well known as an athlete get recruited all over the country and I was a three-sport guy just like him so uh there was some some connection there, and I think he was really. I think he was pretty proud of that. Is that football, basketball, track and field? Yeah, there's all kinds of photos in our, in our family archives of him, uh, you know, playing basketball or 
football and and also a little bit around the track. He was he was a disciplinarian and you know became um, an institution in, in and of himself, winning. And he was an athletic director and he taught a couple of PE classes or whatever. And uh, it was hysterical really uh, to be in that school and have him running around um, straightening kids out. And, <laughs> and then go home and... <laughs> and I'm like, oh God, I, you yeah. know, and I, I was I was scared to death of him. So I, I, I was, uh, again, I didn't get in one bit of trouble all through high school. I, I was, again, I, I, I really was looking for um, a different world, you know, to live in. People struggle with stuff they don't understand, design that's different than what they're used to. Some might consider you to have a sort of a rebellious streak in the world of like sports apparel. Or, yeah, or, yeah, for sure. But it wasn't, even, even if you were willing to do your own thing, you weren't rebelling against breaking rules, things like that. I wasn't, I, wasn't, uh, I was um, sort of going back to my own, my own parents. They were innovative. Um, both my, my mom was a coach also, but she didn't have a teaching degree. So she was a, a, like a paid assistant coach and she helped out at the high school. She was like the cheerleader advisor and stuff like that. So every, all her, our whole lives were built around Central Inn High School. And I don't know, it seemed, it seemed like uh, they were innovators in a lot of different ways, especially my dad was uh, kind of breaking rules, uh, uh, but in, um, in an attempt to try and make things better. Like he was one of the first coaches to build up a, a very strong women's track and field program, which was early on. Oregon had women's track in the, in the 1960s and 70s, but they didn't have women's basketball. They had a sort of weird sort of, sort of form of women's basketball. But he, he made a, a big deal. So he was an innovator, putting so much energy into women's track. And every time we won a state championship in men's track, we would win it in women's too, the girls. How does a school, like say with 400 students, win state against much bigger schools all the time. Um, all the time. It was crazy. So he was an innovator in, the, in that regard. And he was always messing around with the rules on uniforms. And like all of his top athletes all had a, had a, either a red, blue, or uh, all blue singlet and pair of shorts. And there were the rest of the team that weren't, weren't the stars. They were wearing uh, white. And I mean, he, he had some good athletes and we were out, we, those of us that were state champion level kind of people or even national champion type level people, uh, we, we were wearing a different colored uniform. And they, the state of Oregon changed the rules. So everybody had to have exactly the same uniform to be on a relay team or to be on to overall compete at the state meet because of him. <laughs> and was that like a carrot? Like you have to earn the different color uniform? Yeah, he was trying to do what I, what I would consider uh, market the notion that uh, if you're excellent, you should be proud of it and should be known for it. And uh, when I was a sophomore in high school, I was on the varsity basketball team. I was a starter. And he was coaching that year because every once in a while he'd, he'd uh, fire somebody and then he would then step in and coach. So when I was on the varsity basketball team, there were two brothers older than me that were starters. Uh, one was uh, Mike Daniels, the other was Monty Daniels. Um, but they were starters, I was a starter, and then there were two other, two other people. 
there happened to be three other Daniels brothers who were identical oh. triplets. And he got this, and this is just the, this is the innovation part. He figured out that no one had ever in the history of high school sports started a varsity basketball game with five brothers. So he pulled those three, those the, the triplets up, Joe, John, and Jim. They were identical. I could tell them apart, but barely. And so against one of the better teams in the state, they came to town and uh, the news got out that Central Inn was gonna start five brothers. And it hit, it hit the mass media. The, and um, by, the to- by game time, Central Inn High School had to put in extra bleachers and there uh, was national coverage of our basketball game with the starting, the starting five. Now, I didn't quite appreciate the gravity of the situation because I was, all of a sudden, I was not a starter anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Early sports marketing, though, that was. <laughs> but uh, in hindsight, um, it was a brilliant move because um, it brought a lot of attention to not just Central Inn, but um, to, you know, the fact that uh, there are these remarkable families out there where maybe there might be five or six really good athletes from uh, that are really close in age but it was really that that says a fair amount about his personality but also his drive and his ability to sort of think outside the box yeah and that certainly uh, leaked into me one way or another so to give him some credit for not only uh being a disciplinarian and pushing me to to be as good as i could be but also I think I learned a little bit about being an innovator just without realizing. You mentioned you played in the band. What all were your artistic interests when you were (laughs) first growing up? Yeah, well, I mean, I wasn't very artistic as a kid, but I was into music um, a little bit and I played the trumpet and then I got into a little uh, rock band that practiced in my parents' garage. And we actually, uh, I mean, I, I kid you not, in a school like that, you know, there were a couple different times that during halftime, I went over and played the trumpet with the pep band. It was not uncommon for people to, uh, in a school like that for, to play all, all three seasons uh, in some sport and then also be in student council and be in a band. And I mean, just everybody was just doing everything. So I remember playing in a football game and then the game was over and two other guys on the football team were in my in the, in the rock band and we were playing for the dance at the, at the high school cafeteria after the football game. What's the, the vibe rock, here? Are, are we the Beatles? Are we the Stones? Are we the Grateful we're, Dead? We're a totally, we're just a cover band called the Boot Hill Express. And we were, we were playing, you know, you know, Beatles stuff and we were playing uh, Rolling Stones type thing. Okay. You know, kind of stuff that people knew. <laughs> it's just, that's just pure Americana. You're in that the football is, game, then you go play in the band for the dance. Yeah, it was different, especially in those smaller high schools. Um, everything revolved around those high schools um, for the most part. And then my dad was basically the Pied Piper, that whole thing. It was, it was, it was cool. I, I don't think I appreciated it as much then, like most, most teenagers, but 
really, really probably what again sunk in was the the, the fact that that diversity is good. Trying to trying things out, new things is good, and then of course finding that one thing, one or two things that you can be really good at, and then of course pushing pushing that as well. So wasn't into farming, but the fact that I was in a small high school was, I think, kind of helpful. Yeah, just the parallels between kind of your life and the the path that the University of Oregon and Oregon Athletics has taken you know, over the last yeah. few decades. I mean, with still this sense of kind of small town. So there's a sense of it. There's a sense of it. While also having this global footprint a little bit. I don't know if you've seen the University of Oregon license plates running around here and, and there's a duck on there and there's kind of a ripples across the, and I designed that. I was asked to, to do it. And so I was thinking, well, God, there were so many rules again. You couldn't just do like design license plate. There are all kinds of rules, but I figured out how to use the duck asymmetrically and then have basically the, the it, metaphorically speaking, it was a duck in a pond can create ripples that go all the way across the pond. But in a bigger sense, it's that you can be a duck and you can create ripples that go across the ocean. And so there was, there was this sort of storyline about we, we can be from small places and still have a big impact. Working together with Oregon Community Credit Union to produce the Mighty Oregon podcast just feels natural because I've been an OCCU member for as long as I can recall. Whether I was building a savings plan or securing a car loan, Oregon Community Credit Union has always treated me not just like a customer, but a friend and neighbor. Learn more about OCCU and how they've been supporting ducks for over 60 years at myoccu.org grow o. I never used to think about design. I was always focused on being an athlete. You mentioned, you know, innovating, experiencing different things, but then also figuring out a couple things to excel in as well. So when did, when did you figure out track and field was going to be the discipline you competed in in college? I was always small. I, I was always one of the littlest kids in grade school. And pretty much up to about eighth grade, I was just undersized. But I remember, though, before I started, and as when I got bigger, I was always fast. But when you're little and you're fast, it's still not quite enough. And uh, But I remember winning a race at one of the big all-comer meets in Eugene, Oregon, that Bill Bowerman and Tom Ragsdale and Bob Newland, they would put on these huge all-comer meets. Like, there would be 2,000 kids there. At Hayward Field? It was not in Hayward Field. It was in the practice track outside of Hayward Field. But I remember um, they would actually had a 15 hurdles times whatever, 10. Wasn't quite the sprinter yet, but I, uh, I remember winning a race easily against all the Eugene kids and everything. And walking back, and I remember there was a guy in a wheelchair, and he said to me, he said, um, it was kind of cryptically, he said, he said uh, Son, you're going to go someplace. I never knew. I didn't never knew who he was afterward. So that was that was the first time I sort of thought, oh. And uh, then the next year, I got a little bit bigger, and I was now I was basically setting age group records and state records and stuff like that in high school. 
Hurdles can be intimidating. I mean, there's a fearlessness that hurdling requires, and later you get into pole vaulting. There's a fearlessness that yeah, pole vaulting sure. requires. For sure. Was that did that come naturally to you? Like overcoming <laughs> I'm a those? We're hillbillies. <laughs> you know how you learn to swim when you're in Hatfield? When you're three or four years old, they take you down to the local swimming hole and they toss you in the river. And there's no there's no coaching involved. They, they expect you to swim right, to, to dog paddle right back to shore. So I grew up um, in a tough environment family-wise, but also that high school was uh, part far farmers and part loggers from uh, Brownsville and Halsey and Shed. And it was tough, they were tough kids. Yeah. That's why we were good in football and wrestling and things like that and track too. And so I just naturally just uh, took to it. I was fine, you know, could take a punch, you know, or whatever. And, and, and you know, I just started to figure out that as I started getting faster, even the state media started noticing that I was unusually fast. And also I was like an all-state football player. And then I became an all-American football player, which people don't really know too much about. But uh, I started getting just all these accolades and I started winning, setting, I set some national records in the hurdles. Then I started realizing that I actually knew more than my dad about all this stuff, the track stuff, even though he was a track coach, but I had surpassed what he knew. So I just became, I just coached myself in pole vaulting, learned how to pole vault with a fiberglass pole and started going higher. And as, as I got faster and stronger and more normal sized, I started setting records in the pole vault in addition to the hurdling. And I just had no, I was just kind of fearless that way. It's just sort of natural, I guess. And it's kind of runs in the family. So what was there a chance to play football or basketball in college? I got recruited all over the country for all, all three sports. Okay. Even uh, Lefty Drissel of the University of Maryland sent me a letter and, and a, an invitation to fly out to the University of Maryland. Oregon State really wanted me to play basketball. And uh, Oregon uh, figured that they didn't recruit me for football very much because they figured that Bowerman was going to give me a scholarship and then they, they, they tried to get me into the football program. But you'd be on a track scholarship. On a track scholarship. Yeah. So in, in those days, there were more track scholarships than there are now. There are twice as many for, for men in those days. There were like 24 scholarships, full scholarships, and now there's like 11 or something. But, but I remember when I signed my letter of intent, and Dan Fouts was the quarterback. He was moving into his senior year. And I had signed a letter of intent and I don't know how legal it was, but I went to Eugene and uh, they had me catch passes from Dan Fouts. Danny wants to pass, drops straight back in the pocket, looks over the middle, Greg Speck is there in the end zone, touchdown, caught Greg Speck. And I was told, okay, when you go, when you run this route, and they, they would tell you their route, get to your spot, but you better have, better be turned around and have your hands up or you're going to get hit right in the face. And I'll be down. I go, I, I did a, like a 10 yard and then out to the sideline. And I was supposed to turn around and I'll kid you not that ball. I admit I did a turn and I had my hands up. Boom. The ball was there. Yeah. Dan Faust was unbelievable. Yeah. And so I caught, I, that was a, I just did it a couple of times 
Because uh, then Bill Bowerman found out about it. He didn't. <laughs> but but in the end, uh, uh, you know, um, I went was in architecture school, and it was a it was a tough it was tough to do all that. So I, uh, and then I got my I blew my ankle up, and right. um, so there was no no chance for me to be a sprinter and hurdler or a football player. I, I remember hearing overhearing the doctor say he just gets gets done. Yeah. So. And I was done, come, except uh, I had I was a pole vaulter and I could limp down the runway and still go almost as high as everybody else. So I, that's what they did. I, I missed basically two seasons. So I got three out of five. And But in the, the fourth and fifth of those, I started setting school records and damn near made the Olympics in 1976. And Bill Barman was, uh, had made me some special shoes and he was... He, he, even though he was retired from coaching, he was still kind of my coach and my mentor. So um, I was really lucky that I was a sh connected to him that way. So anyway, it worked out that I scored in the NCAA meet twice, two different times and set the school record and then uh, started getting really good toward uh, Olympic trials in 76. Got uh, seventh in the NCAAs. Then I got seventh, and then I went even higher, and I just got seventh in the national, the open national championships, and that, and I went high enough to make the Olympic qualifying standard, and so therefore I was. Then I got into the trials, and then I got sixth in the trials. I had no idea how much work a discipline like architecture would be. You hear now coaches from, from kids who come in and say, yeah, I wanted to do architecture, but a coach told me, hey, doing architecture with a sport, it'd be too much. But Bowerman actually yeah, that's, that's encouraged you? That's an interesting story, uh, which I've maybe told a time or two, but I went all over the place uh, on recruiting visits and uh, they would ask me what I was wanting to study. And I'm, I'd go architecture. They would either say, well, we don't have an architecture department. Or they would say, um, you know, we really, we really don't think that's a good idea. And we probably won't be able to give you the full ride if you're going to try and go to architecture because it's, it's just super hard to do both, especially a team sport. And so I was like, I, I, I had no idea how difficult architecture was. And I actually had no idea how difficult it was going to be to be a, a top athlete in that division one level. I just was a little, again, a little bit naive. And, and well, so, how could you know? Yeah. Yeah. And then my last visit was to the University of Oregon. And of course, the same question came up. Bill Bowerman said, well, what do you want to study? And I'm like, architecture. And he's like, he looks at me and he goes, you know, you know, that's, there's, there's a, that, that takes a lot of time. There's a lot of, there's a lot of work that goes into being an architecture school. And I, but I, but I know some professors there. I could get you in. And he thought about it for another few seconds. He goes, you know what? I think I just have I just have a good feeling about that you can handle it. And so he was the only one of all those coaches that said you can have your full ride, University of Oregon, man of Oregon, track guy, and I will personally get you enrolled in the in the School of Architecture. This is the first of a three-part series examining Tinker Hatfield's role in reshaping popular culture and how being an organ duck vaulted him into a world he never could have imagined.
next week on the Mighty Organ Podcast, presented by Organ Community Credit Union. I had no idea how to paint. Zero. And so when I went to the University of Oregon, I, I, was, not, uh, I was not prepared to be in the architecture department. I didn't have a portfolio. But it was fortunate for me that I, you know, that I just had this natural talent to be able to draw. Thanks for joining us on the Mighty Organ Podcast presented by Organ Community Credit Union, a production of Sport and Story and Learfield IMG College. You can support this podcast by going to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review the Mighty Organ Podcast presented by Organ Community Credit Union. I'm Rob Mosley, your host. The Mighty Organ Podcast presented by Organ Community Credit Union is produced by Andy Boggs. Episodes are mixed, engineered, and edited by James Youngblood. Our production assistants are Evan Eccleston and Emery Kincaid. Theme music for the Mighty Organ Podcast presented by Organ Community Credit Union is composed by Sweet 25. Our supervising producers are Bart Pullman and Kelly Shukart. The executive producer of Sport & Story is Bo Mattingly. Special thanks to Tinker Hatfield and Netflix. Come back and join us next week for another episode of the Mighty Organ Podcast presented by Organ Community Credit Union. Some people just know the best rate for you is a rate based on you with Allstate. Not one based on the driver who treats the highway like a racetrack and the shoulder like a passing lane. Why pay a rate based on anyone else? Get one based on you with DriveWise from Allstate. Not available in Alaska or California. Subject to terms and conditions. Rates are determined by several factors, which vary by state. In some states, participation in DriveWise allows Allstate to use your driving data for purposes of rating. While in some states, your rate could increase with high-risk driving. Generally, safer drivers will save with DriveWise. Allstate Fire and Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates Northbrook, Illinois.